0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This week's show is a fireside chat I recorded at the Stacks conference, which was celebrating Blockstack's mainnet launch. The topic was Bitcoin Layer 2s, and the guests were Milton Demirers, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, and Nick Carter, General Partner at Castle Island Ventures. We explained why Layer 2s exist, how they work, what people are building, and how moving Bitcoin to Layer 2 affects the value of the asset. It was a super fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, here's the show Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our panel, Layer 2s on Bitcoin, with Melton Demir, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, and Nick Carter, General Partner at Castle Island Ventures.
1: Welcome, Milton and Nick. Hi. Hi, Laura. Uh, it's so exciting to be here. And I have to uh, give th- a thanks to Nick in advance. I roped him into this. <laughs> I texted him. I was like, Nick, you're doing this. I want to have this conversation with you. <laughs> so thanks, Nick.
2: No, I'm very glad to be here. And that was a really great remix of uh, of uh, Massive Attack just before this. So I was really enjoying that.
0: Yes, so was I. All right, so let's start our discussion by just defining what layer one and layer two are for people who don't know, just to make sure we're all on the same page and also why multiple layers are necessary at all.
1: Sure. Do yeah. you want to kick it off, Nick?
2: I can start. I can start. Sure. So in virtually every uh, payment system, they, they function in layers. So um, when we talk about layers in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, it's actually completely... In line with how things work in, you know, the traditional payment space. So, you know, it, it's possible to send a wire as a consumer. You know, we have access to Fedwire if we want, but you know, for the most part, when you use dollars, you're you know transacting uh, with credit systems or peer-to-peer payments like Venmo, PayPal, etc. Those would be considered second or even third layers on top of you know more fundamental clearing infrastructure. Uh, where you have batched payments, which happen less frequently and they're larger in size, and those payments at the bottom of the stack have higher assurances so and they kind of settle immediately as opposed to the higher layered payments which settle on a deferred basis, you know so credit card payments are not final immediately. so if you extend that analogy to cryptocurrency, just to sort of contextualize it a little bit, Bitcoin payments would be considered fast settling high assurance. Payments, So those are, in my mind, kind of utility-scale transactions. You can move huge amounts of value. You can have confidence they're going to settle immediately. Layer two, in my view, is more about uh, deferring settlement, um, getting more scalability through trading off against those settlement assurances, uh, getting faster finality um, by trading off again against the assurances. So basically opening up the design space and mirroring those you know that that layered model that we have in payments itself uh, and you know i think that's really how payment systems scale uh, as far as we understand them i think it's unlikely that you unite everybody on the bottom layer you know that would be like if all we ever used for transactions was sending wires to each other so that's kind of my view of it multiple i don't know if you have a, a different diagnosis
1: yeah, no, I think um, the way you articulated, Nick, is a, a great starting point. Um, you know, the analogy we use often is the Bitcoin blockchain is more akin to, to Fedwire. And uh, what we've seen, you know, a lot of other protocols have moved more quickly to adopt layer twos. I think Ethereum in particular is one that from the very early days had a mindset to sort of start moving towards layer two. And one of the interesting observations is over the last six month, six months, pardon, really, as we've seen the explosion of DeFi and new financial primitives being um, implemented on top of Ethereum. Obviously, it's resulted in a lot of challenges in in network availability, network throughput, and rising price in, in um, sending transactions across the network, deploying smart contracts. Now, obviously, Bitcoin doesn't function in the same way. But what I think is important to note is um, you know, there is an important function here, whereas Bitcoin's usage grows and the adoption of Bitcoin grows and number of use cases that people are utilizing for Bitcoin grows, we're going to need different layers that have these features that are optimized for the specificity of the use case. And that's something that's talked about maybe a bit more in other protocols that are newer and I've had an opportunity to learn from watching what's happened in Bitcoin. But I think it's been interesting to observe, you know, um, in many people's minds, we really don't ever think about the amount of bandwidth we're consuming or the cost of connectivity to the core protocol with which we're interacting. And in many ways, the way I think about Bitcoin, uh, for the first time in human history, we have a way to price compute and connectivity. There's a very real price that you have to pay to prioritize transactions in the mempool. And so um, in my view, it's actually really like an interesting crossover, pardon, between some of the concepts around compute and connectivity and how routing topologies work with money, right? You're basically implementing a routing topology using transaction fees and, and money effectively that allow you to sort of create specificity in terms of what layer of the stack you want to operate um, with the output compromising the security guarantees of of Bitcoin. And again, as Nick described, there are inevitably going to be trade-offs, but what we've observed so far as we look at the proliferation of Bitcoin as an asset across other chains, whether that's in the form of wrapped Bitcoin or other assets, is people really do want to have the security guarantees of Bitcoin as an asset, but they want to have the ability to adapt some of the parameters around how they're utilizing the network and some of the security guarantees of their transactions. Transactions, particularly, lower fee transactions, or perhaps being able to deploy smart contracts or uh, more complex uh, sort of logic that maybe isn't as easy to deploy in Bitcoin script. So, I think that's very important. And the other piece I'll just quickly add that I think is really important since this conference is about developers, developers, developers. Uh, to borrow a line from Steve Ballmer, if you remember his famous <laughs> developers, developers, developers speech, is um, you know, Electric Capital puts out this great report, um, and it just came out. It's their State of the Developer Ecosystem report. And one of the interesting observations they have is there are a lot more developers in other protocols than there are in Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is notoriously hard to develop with. And building a robust grasp of Bitcoin Core protocol takes much longer than perhaps some of these other protocols, which are scripted in more familiar languages and have um, different types of logic that's more intuitive to say, like JavaScript developers or other other developer communities that are much larger. So what I think has also been interesting to observe, and we have this in the legacy financial system, the entire legacy financial system is built on something called COBOL, right? Which is like this archaic pro- programming language. Um, like most people who know COBOL really, really well are probably over the age of 60 because <laughs> they were designing core banking systems in the seventies. So there's actually this really interesting um technological risk that exists in our core financial system and our core financial applications in that the group of people who know and really understand and are experts in COBOL are all going to be retiring in the next 10 years, right? So it's created this tremendous amount of pressure on the banking sector to replace some of these core banking systems that were built 50, 60 years ago, because there is a real risk of technological um, obsolescence and not having enough talented people to step into those roles. And I sort of see the same thing happening in, in crypto, right? There aren't necessarily tens of thousands of Bitcoin developers out there who can build really robust highly secure layers on top of Bitcoin and so um, it's been really interesting to see what's been happening in the Stacks ecosystem and I'm really excited about um, the launch of Stacks Mainnet because I think one of the really important um, design space constraints that we have to get through is the fact that the Bitcoin developer community is just inherently much smaller than other developer communities because the level of knowledge required is very specific. The amount of time it takes to become really proficient in Bitcoin and to understand all of the nuances of why Bitcoin Core looks the way it does, prior BIPs, the history of BIPs, why certain things are good ideas or bad ideas. takes a long time. Like I'm seven years in and I still know nothing. Nick, I don't know how you feel about that. (laughs) Um, But that's where I think Layer 2s can be helpful in improving extensibility because you don't necessarily require a bunch of people to become incredibly proficient in Bitcoin Core. Through Layer 2s, you can now introduce other programming language that really broaden the developer ecosystem and allow people from other ecosystems to be able to to build on top of Bitcoin without necessarily needing to go through that learning curve um, that you otherwise would. But again, it's just interesting to me that that's also mirrored in legacy finance where like banks are shitting themselves because all their best cobalt people are leaving and they don't have anyone to replace them. So it's sort of an interesting parallel, um, at least you know, for me. I think it's it's been an observation I've recently become much more aware of.
0: Leave it to Meltem to swear in her first answer. I love it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Um I think one of my favorite episodes is when you came on my show and you talked about the shitcoin waterfall. But anyway, um okay, so I did want to just get a few kind of like facts about the different layers out of the way also because um you know when you were talking about like the different types of uh, or the the uh the rate of transactions that we can have on the different layers. So the current throughput on Bitcoin is what it's I think it's seven transactions a second. And then what would, what, what would a layer two enable? And then same, why don't we just maybe for comparison talk about Ethereum as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think, I don't know about the exact TPS, but Bitcoin does what, 350,000 transactions a day and Ethereum does north of a million, right? Um, if you compare the base layer to second layers, honestly, it's sort of unbounded. At the second layer, like if we have a lightning channel open between us, we can send an arbitrary amount of transfers because we're just sort of keeping track of those between us. That information doesn't need to be registered to the chain itself. Uh, and then you would eventually or periodically have a settlement that goes back down to the base layer. So you, in some cases, in my view, you win a completely arbitrary amount of scalability, but you are paying for that by changing the security model and the assurances of the transaction. So, right. And I think in
1: in the in the numbers you're using, Nick, right? Um, yes, there's an arbitrary amount of transactions they can push through the Lightning Network. Really, the only constraint at this stage on Lightning is uh channel capacity, right? So there is a liquidity constraint in terms of how many channels are open, and how much liquidity is in those channels. But as like with anything else, the market is going to design solutions that make it profitable for people to open channels and maintain channels, and we're seeing those liquidity solutions coming to market. But again, um the core the reconciliation. Back to the core Bitcoin blockchain still happens once every 10 minutes. So that is the natural constraint. At the end of the day, this is true of every layer two protocol, right? Whether it's in Bitcoin or another blockchain, at the end of the day, the security guarantee is only as good as the last block that was mined and the data that was hashed into that block. Um, and the way, you know, Elizabeth Stark um, at Lightning Labs uses this great analogy: using Bitcoin is like using email and having to download every email that's ever been sent in order to use your email. That's not how email works. For Nick and I to exchange messages with one another, we don't need to download the entire history of email ever. That's impractical. So lightning is basically an abstraction that allows you to avoid having to do that, but you are making certain trade-offs. And again, there is still an inherent limitation, just as there is in our banking sector, inherent limit, an inherent limitation on the capacity of, of Fedwire and how often reconciliation happens there, right? It's, it's not like you can achieve infinite scalability just because you're doing things higher up in the stack. Ultimately, you are dependent on that base protocol, and you are bound to the security guarantees of that base protocol. So if your protocol is not immutable, (laughs) like good luck. (laughs) Like no amount of layer two or three or whatever you build on top of that is going to have security guarantees that are more robust than your base layer, which is why I think layer two on Bitcoin to me is so interesting. Because if we look at where value is occurring in the ecosystem today, if we look at the asset people want to own, really like Bitcoin exists in a universe of its own. And then it's not a judgment. It's an observation that's supported by evidence.
2: Yeah. The the one thing I would add to that briefly would just be You know, people are willing to accept inferior security models for uh, second layer payments, which is why, you know, I happily accept the risk of a reversal if I'm a merchant and I'm accepting a credit card payment. That's actually more convenient. You don't always want strong finality. Bitcoin at the base layer offers you a very specific flavor of risk and a very specific flavor of settlement assurance, which is not necessarily appropriate for every transaction. So, You don't really compromise anything by building alternative, you know, trade-offs in that kind of design space at higher layers. Uh, You're just expanding sort of the nature of the asset, whether that means transacting on Ethereum or in a Lightning channel or on Liquid or on a, you know, on a merged mine system.
0: Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. And so you guys um, both mentioned the Lightning Network, and Melton briefly described this, but just for people who aren't familiar, so that's a type of payment channel system. and you did talk about how there needs to be money that's put up front. Can you explain how that works? And then also, you know, one thing I actually feel like I've never either understood or or it's just that it it's not well built at the moment. To me, the incentives for um, like locking up your capital in a lightning channel in order to enable those payments and then the amount that you'll earn in fees from it, it doesn't like economically make sense to me. So, you know, I don't know how incentivized people would be to do that. So can you talk about first how that works, but then also how the incentive system works?
2: Melton, you want to go first? Yeah,
1: I I can kick it off. Yeah. So again, the way I would describe lightning channels and lightning network is um, basically what we're doing is when I set up a lightning channel with someone. So let's say, for example, that I want to set up a lightning channel with Nick and Nick has a lightning channel with you. And Laura, now because I'm connected to Nick and Nick's connected to you, I'm connected to you, right? So what lightning network basically does is by opening these channels between multiple actors on the network, you can start to route together the fastest, most optimal way to go from point A to point B. And what we're doing when we're creating a channel between me and Nick or Nick and you is we're collateralizing the channel. Basically, what we're attesting to is the fact that we have a certain amount of collateral or capital that we're willing to post to open and maintain liquidity in that channel. And whenever I utilize, um, it's basically creating a money tube, right? And saying, okay, this much money can go through this tube. So hopefully that's a helpful analogy. I always think of like the little money tubes that you used to go to the <laughs> drive through bank and you put your money in and get sucked up yes. and it goes to the So that's what I'm doing, but I'm doing it in cyberspace. So there's now a money tube between me and Nick. And let's say, for example, I collateralized that channel um, to have a throughput of up to one Bitcoin. Basically what that means is every um, 10 minute or ev- roughly every Bitcoin block, I can send up to that capacity and um, it has to reconcile and that money tube has to sort of be re-collateralized Cleared in order for it to reach full capacity again. So basically, it kind of creates the limit as to how much transaction volume can go through that money tube, based on the security guarantees and the collateral pledge that you're making. And so, again, with Lightning Network, you know, if there's a lot of one-way activity, for example, if someone built a new product and um, you know they've they've only set up a, a small number of Lightning channels to start with, there's going to be capacity constraints because those money tubes get full, and so it takes some time for those to clear and for more transactions to be able to flow through the network. But as there more and more nodes in the network, say that everyone who's at this conference joins Lightning Network and we're all connected to one another, all of a sudden we're able to leverage that uh, network capacity and send much more throughput through the network. So it's sort of an interesting recursive challenge in a payment channel type of structure where you need a lot of money tubes filled with a lot of (laughs) capacity in order to be able to facilitate money to flow from point A to point B in the most efficient way possible. Um, So that's the way that Lightning works in in my mind it's like a very juvenile description but I think it's a helpful way to understand it the other thing I'll add is currently um, there are certain limitations on lightning that were placed there because lightning is an experimental technology and as many people know I think the ethos of <laughs> development in Bitcoin in many ways you know some people call it slow and some people call it boring but inherently um, bitcoins much more risk averse than maybe some other protocols that don't have such a large market capitalization or maybe don't have you know such a <laughs> strong commitment to add immutability and, and security. Um, so there are some natural constraints that are baked into lightning while it is still in sort of its infancy that also limit capacity. And those constraints over time as the um, as the networks more battle-tested and more channels are established will hopefully uh, be lifted a bit to facilitate more transactions. But it's sort of like the limit you have on Venmo. I think on Venmo you can send, what, like $2,000 a week. There's some sort of limit that's applied because it is to Point a lower security platform. You can't send billions of dollars of money through Venmo, or even as an individual user. You know you have an actual limit on how much you can send. Um, likewise, right now in Lightning, there are some capacity constraints that have been applied just in order to preserve security and to ensure if things do go wrong, um, the amount of capital and the amount of Bitcoin collateral that's that's lost is minimized. And then, but can you answer also about
0: the incentives? Because when I, I, you know, I looked into this quite a while ago, but I remember somebody wrote about their experience holding uh, or um, having a node on, on lightning. And when I realized the math, I was like, Whoa, they earned so little money for all the capital they locked up. And it was something like they wouldn't, you know, break even for like a really, really long time. And I was kind of like, Hmm, okay, well then will people be incentivized to do this economically?
1: Yeah, I think the transaction fee story, um, and sort of the economics of lightning is something that's been discussed at great length. I think in order for the economics of, um, maintaining liquidity and lightning channels to, to be there, uh, usage of the network has to to grow. Ultimately, the idea for Lightning, the use case I think of, is not really human-to-human payments, but machine-to-machine payments. So the idea is, you know, if my phone was communicating with your phone, Laura, um, you know, we were constantly sending transactions back and forth, there would be a lot more transaction fees that accrue. So if you're earning one Satoshi per second every second of the day, that can very quickly become a lucrative activity, especially if the value of Bitcoin, you know, it's much more lucrative when the value of Bitcoin's at $45,000 opposed to, you know, the $10,000 it was at a year ago when everyone was trying to run lightning nodes. So I think it's sort of a function of um, the network and the amount of throughput going through the lightning network as well.
0: Okay, yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on this, but it was something I had wondered about before. Um, So one other thing that I wanted to ask about, you know, so obviously, we've been talking about Bitcoin layer twos. um, But then also, as you mentioned, we are seeing a lot of Bitcoin being moved over to other chains, in particular, Ethereum. Um, So when that happens. Uh, you know, what do you think? Well, first of all, what are people, why are people doing that? What are they doing over there? And well, let's just cover
1: that. And then I'll ask this follow up.
2: Well, I'd, I'd be curious to hear Meltem's answer because I've sort of wondered this myself.
1: Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I participate in the DeFi ecosystem. Um, I dabble, as you know, so I'm happy to chat about this a bit. So um, look, when, when it comes to capital markets, in particular, crypto capital markets, if we look at market microstructure. So the underlying sort of nature of the market, who the key players are, what the key venues are. The thing that's really fascinating is the majority of volume in the market is Bitcoin to USDT volume or Bitcoin to Tether volume and Bitcoin to USD volume. Um, so the asset that people really want to trade in the market that's the most liquid is the Bitcoin market. And Bitcoin effectively is a liquidity sink in this ecosystem in the sense that um, whenever, you know, there's a market rally, typically it happens in Bitcoin first and then it bleeds over into Other chains and other assets. And whenever there's a drop, it typically happens in Bitcoin first and then bleeds over into other assets. And that's really nature of the structure of this market in the sense that the majority of the liquidity is still fairly isolated in, in Bitcoin. When I look at Bitcoin moving to other chains or migrating to other chains, there's two functions that I think we can ascribe this to. One is um, this boom in in DeFi or building new capital markets and new market microstructure using Ethereum. And so what we see is people wanting to continue to trade Bitcoin, but wanting a way to do it natively on Ethereum in a way that's compatible with what they call these, these DeFi money Legos. So that's trend one. But trend two, the reason that's happening is when we talk about what people want as an asset, people want to be allocated to Bitcoin. Bitcoin still has 70% uh, market dominance when it comes to measuring my market cap. And I think that's a function of the fact that when people look at the universe of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin really stands in a domain of its own, which is why I think with Stacks main net launch and being able to earn Bitcoin through uh, merge mining, you know, that's something that'll be really attractive, I think, to people who are running infrastructure with the objective of earning yields. Like The prospect of earning Bitcoin Versus earning, you know, another coin is much more attractive. And so to me, the representation of Bitcoin across other chains is something that will only continue to proliferate. And um, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if other assets start to take that approach. Um, This is really how Cosmos, I think, started. You know, they started with a Bitcoin hub before anything else. Why? Because Bitcoin has majority of the trading volume market structures built around Bitcoin and what people want to trade, what people want to hold is, is Bitcoin. That's my view. Uh, Nick, I'd be curious to hear what you think, if you agree or disagree.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think it's very plausible. We see that, uh, the most liquid, uh, and actively traded, uh, DeFi, uh, assets, one of them is typically wrapped Bitcoin, um, along with Ether and, and stable coins. Um, I've also heard that people wanted to use wrapped Bitcoin for yield farming purposes so that they could retain exposure to Bitcoin while engaging in yield farming. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to look at the Bitcoin migration to Ethereum. It really is very material. We're talking 150,000 units of Bitcoin are present on Ethereum about $5.8 billion, I think at, at current prices. However, there's many different types of Wrapped Bitcoin, the largest one is WBTC, which is kind of custodial, uh, which is a, a very different kind of trust model uh, from you know owning Bitcoin on on the the native chain. Um, if you go down that list, you find the more decentralized models like TBTC issued by Keep. That one is more decentralized, but there's only a, a, I believe a couple thousand BTC in that particular. Uh, you know kind of cross chain model yeah. so and
1: and the reason for that is Nick, that more decentralized model requires more collateral to be posted and staked to guarantee the security of the collateral right if you don't have a central counterparty who's going to custody the Bitcoin that you wrap and provide certain security guarantees. And the only way you can provide those security guarantees is to over collateralize and to require people to post a, a, an amount of collateral equivalent to the Bitcoin position they're creating and to potentially even over collateralize by a high margin just given how volatile Bitcoin has been historically and how rapidly um, prices of Bitcoin can fluctuate
2: yeah and so you you're right you have a trade-off between decentralization and sort of capital efficiency there's also Another popular way to create Bitcoin flavored risk, although it's not with Bitcoin, would be through something like synthetics, uh, where you can use, you can over collateralize uh, another asset and create something that resembles Bitcoin in terms of its financial risk. Again, that bit more decentralized, bit less capital efficient. Uh, but it, it is fascinating to see the demand for Bitcoin on third party chains. Um, I, some people I think it's think. so
1: exciting. I'm like, yeah. hell to the yes.
2: <laughs> and- well, it, it's great because you're teasing apart the asset itself and then the protocol for conveying value. And Bitcoin refers to both things, but they can be totally distinguished and that's what we're seeing now.
0: Yeah, well, so I was going to ask you, so do you think that so do you think that using Bitcoin on layer two has a different effect on the asset itself, like in terms of the price than using Bitcoin on a different chain or are they both accretive to the value?
1: I think the key question there is how um, that Bitcoin is sort of stored and managed. When Bitcoin is represented on other chains, um, that Bitcoin is effectively locked up and taken out of circulations in most model, circulation in most models pardon. unless it's synthetic exposure, like Nick was mentioning with synthetics. But in most instances we see today with like WTBTC, WTB, uh, TBTC, RENBTC, you're actually collateralizing uh, the underlying, you're securitizing, I should say, the underlying Bitcoin and making it useful on other chains. So in that instance, you're taking Bitcoin out of the market, which inherently has, uh, you know, an, an impact on the market. and that, you know, as demand increases, there's less supply in the market, and you know, everyone's on the econ 101 graph where you have your line for supply, you have your line for demand. If supply is fixed and demand goes up, then obviously there will be price increase. Um, so that's the effect that I think uh, collateralized Bitcoin on other chains has. When it comes to Bitcoin on L2, I think um, Bitcoin moving into the Lightning ecosystem. Depending on how much of it is used, used, pardon, to seed liquidity on lightning channels, there could be some effect. But at the end of the day, moving Bitcoin between lightning. And uh, Bitcoin like layer base layer network is is quite easy. I do it all the time using a uh, Blue Wallet, which is a great app that has HD Bitcoin wallet and a Lightning Bitcoin wallet. It's quite easy to do, so you can add liquidity, remove liquidity from channels fairly easily. And so, I think in that instance, it doesn't necessarily have the same a- a- effect um, because you're still talking about Bitcoin being in circulation and people being able to move assets on the the same chain. Um, and so, I think the effect of Bitcoin moving to other chains, right, is certainly far more uh, value creative to the underlying value story around Bitcoin. I think the other piece is also a narrative thing, (laughs) right? I think one thing that would be amazing to see, you know, if the price of Bitcoin goes to $200,000, we could effectively see a higher volume of Bitcoin trading activity on DeFi than any other asset, which would be sort of like a crazy thing to conceptualize, but it's not inconceivable. And I think from a narrative perspective, that really starts to prove out the point that Nick mentioned, where the story here really is around the value of um, Bitcoin, the asset being separated from the value of the infrastructure that it's used to trade on. It's like, you know, CME and ICE and all these venues that people to trade have different types of functionality and are used in different ways. But the value of ICE isn't the value of the total market cap of all the assets that are traded on, on ICE. That's preposterous.
2: There's one other thing to mention, which is if you were moving Bitcoin entirely from the Bitcoin protocol and circulating on ETH, I think there's a potential cannibalization effect on the fees that would otherwise be paid to miners to circulate that Bitcoin, because now those are fees being paid to Ethereum miners, right? So from a soundness of the protocol perspective, I would say you are actually reducing the fee uh, revenue that's accreting to miners on Bitcoin. Whereas if you're doing L2, which is sort of nearer to Bitcoin like liquid or lightning or I would say uh, Blockstack actually has the potential to accrete fees back to Bitcoin miners. You know, that is potentially better for the long term security of the protocol from a security spend perspective. So I think I, I might have a slight preference for the Bitcoin adjacent L2 as opposed to porting the asset to third party chains entirely.
0: So we only have another minute or two before we have to go, but I did want to, I mean, we've only really talked about Lightning as a Bitcoin layer two, and um, I just wanted you to throw out some other of your favorite Bitcoin layer twos for people to check out.
1: Yeah, so I can start. Um, there are a lot of different ways that people are trying to build Bitcoin layer two. So um, Lightning obviously is focused on payment channels and creating a new type of channel driven topology to facilitate efficient routing from one node to another. Um, there's merge mining protocols. So one example is Rootstock. Um, Stacks is going to be merge mined as well, which is super cool. So there are a number of, of instantiations um, like that. There are um, side chains as well. So Liquid is an example of a side chain where a participant at Coin shares in the, the Liquid network and that's really a side chain that's focused on facilitating clearing and settlement and we're working on a bunch of really interesting new atomic swap settlement protocols um, built on top of Liquid that allow you to sort of um, settle funds at the same time as opposed to having the problem of who goes first, which is still an interesting problem in the OTC space since Bitcoin settles with finality but cash doesn't uh, necessarily. So those are some of the ones I've been looking at. Um, I've also been looking at Sovereign, which is a project that's focused on bringing DeFi and DeFi yields to the Bitcoin space. they um, sort of decentralizing a lot of the centralized Bitcoin lending platforms and their functionality. So I'll, I can pass it to you, Nick. I don't know if I've named all of your favorites as yeah. well, though. <laughs> I've left <laughs> you with nothing.
2: This is kind of a referendum on the state of Bitcoin L2, is that you just basically named all the major ones. Um, but I, I like so the <laughs> approach. I think merge mining is very elegant, very cool. Um, and so I'm super excited to see what Blockstack does. And honestly, I know Liquid gets a lot of flack, but I think it's totally fine to have alternative security models. There's no deception there. Um, And as long as you're transparent with the security model, um, you know, and you have big scalability wins by creating federation, uh, that's fine. So, yeah, those those are the key ones. And uh, I'm obviously monitoring all of them closely, too.
0: All right, great. Well, this has been a super fun discussion. Thank you both so much for coming on the, this fireside chat. I started to say on my podcast.
1: Um, anyway, <laughs> Mara, you're just in podcast mode. Like you've
0: done it for so I long. Know, I know I could do it in my sleep. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, everybody enjoy the rest of the Stacks Conference. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's News Recap. First headline, Bitcoin liquidations trigger sell-off, but the bull run isn't over. After Bitcoin saw all-time highs near $42,000 last week, the price fell below $31,000 on Monday when a series of future liquidations sparked declines elsewhere in the market. On-chain analyst Willie Wu noted that once spot markets began their sell-off, Coinbase began failing to register buys. That caused the Bitcoin price on Coinbase to go $350 lower than on other exchanges. That, in turn, pulled down index prices that future exchanges, futures exchanges use to calculate leverage funding. Synthetics founder Kane Warwick took to Twitter to offer his theory on how over-leveraged longs had caused these corrections. He said that in an early bull market, long-time holders will take profits around a previous all-time high. After that, however, he said they will ride the price up to multiples of the previous all-time high. For example, he wrote, quote, I sold around 5 to 10 percent of my ETH into stables between $500 and $1,200. Over $1,200, you would need to claw it out of my cold dead hands before we hit three k." The Block's Larry Cermak pulled data showing that retail investors are dipping their toes back into the crypto markets in this rally that has so far been driven by institutional money. Although the numbers have not reached 2017 levels yet, Google's search interest for Bitcoin is at a three-year high, and exchange traffic is also starting to pick up, with another consecutive monthly increase of 24% in December, and data showing a total of 196 million website visits to crypto exchanges. Next headline, Gary Gensler named SEC chairman a move hailed as positive for crypto. President-elect Joe Biden is expected to name Gary Gensler as chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Gensler, a former Commodities Futures Trading Commission chairman, has testified before Congress regarding crypto and blockchain technology on several occasions and once called it, quote, a catalyst for change in the world of finance and broader economy. On Twitter, Compound General Counsel Jake Chervinsky said Gensler's selection signals a policy shift in favor of a Bitcoin ETF, while also pointing out that Gensler was on the record in 2018, saying there was a strong case XRP is a security, and so there is unlikely to be a shift in the SEC's case against Ripple. Next headline. FinCEN extends comment period on controversial self-hosted wallet rules. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network extended its comment period for a proposed rule that would require crypto exchanges to store name and address information for customers sending more than $3,000 in crypto per day to self-hosted crypto wallets. It would also mandate that exchanges file currency transaction reports for customers whose transactions exceed $10,000 a day. On Thursday, FinCEN said it would reopen the proposed rulemaking period for an additional 15 days from January 15th. The extension means that current Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin largely seen as the sole driving force behind the proposed rule, will no longer be in office when comments come to a close. Next headline. BACT will go public on New York Stock Exchange through SPAC deal. BACT is going public on the New York Stock Exchange via a SPAC or special purpose acquisition company, merging with VPC Impact Acquisition Holdings, which is backed by investment firm Victory Park Capital. The VC firm will also provide new funding as Bax raises an additional $532 million. The venture is expected to have a public valuation of $2.1 billion once the merger is completed. The company also announced that it had appointed Gavin Michael, a former city executive, as its CEO. The digital trading and payments app, which is expected to have a March launch, will allow users to buy and sell cryptocurrencies and manage other digital assets such as loyalty points and gift cards. Its regulatory filing states that Bact, which has more than 400,000 people pre-registered ahead of its launch, hopes to reach more than 30 million customers by 2025. The news comes as another longtime player in the crypto exchange space, Gemini, says it is considering a debut on the stock market. Gemini would be following in the footsteps of Coinbase, which filed paperwork to go public at the end of last year. According to The Block, pre-IPO futures for Coinbase on FTX are trading at $303, implying a $76 billion valuation. Next headline, XRP update. The XRP security saga continues to play out with digital asset investment firm Grayscale confirming Wednesday that it is dissolving its XRP trust. This announcement comes days after the firm announced the liquidation of XRP positions from its digital large cap fund. In both cases, the catalyst was the SEC's decision to file a lawsuit against Ripple. However, it wasn't all bad news for Ripple this week, with the top securities regulator in Japan saying XRP is not a security. Japan's financial services agency confirmed to the block this week that it views XRP as a cryptocurrency, not a security. As a side note, the XRP army has taken to replying to SEC tweets that are completely unrelated to the Ripple case, with comments like, Here in the UK, the finance ministry has declared XRP as an exchange token, not a security. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, NOT A SECURITY is in all caps. Next headline. An argument for social recovery wallets. Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin published a blog post about increasing wallet security with what he called social recovery. Social recovery is a smart contract wallet with a single signing key to approve transactions, as well as a set of three or more guardians who can be called upon when the user loses his or her signing key. At that time, he or she would ask their guardians to sign special transactions to change the key registered in the wallet to a new one. Good suggestions for potential guardians would be, one, other devices owned by the user, two, friends and family, and three, institutions. As if to highlight just how useful this type of wallet would be, the New York Times came up with an article the next day about the plight of Bitcoin millionaires who have lost access to their wallet, including one who has lost $222 million in Bitcoin at the current prices sitting on a hardware wallet that will only give him two more tries at the password before encrypting the contents forever. Next headline. Brian Brooks quits the OCC. Brian Brooks stepped down as acting head of the Office of the Controller of the Currency Thursday. Brooks had a bold tenure as acting OCC head the last eight months and was expected to step down or be replaced by the incoming Biden administration. Brooks will be remembered for issuing several interpretive letters that cleared the way for banks to interact with cryptocurrencies, with many describing him as the nation's, quote, first fintech controller. On Tuesday, Brooks published an op-ed in the Financial Times calling for 21st century regulation of emerging DeFi projects. Just as self-driving cars have appeared in the last few years and upended the way we think about transportation and leaving regulators scrambling, Brooks called for more clarity in federal regulation of DeFi. He expects DeFi applications to take off quickly, risking a scenario in which U.S. states fill the void of federal regulatory uncertainty, impeding the development of a national market. Time for fun bits. How a normie artist became stupid Bitcoin rich and paid it back. Ali Spaniola, an independent artist and creator of outrageousness, as she calls herself, made a hilarious video about how she earned a Bitcoin back in 2013. And by the way, not in like November, December 2013, but like June 2013. She logged back in recently, discovered it was worth $11,000 then by the time she actually published the video, it was worth $40,000. The video then details how she paid her newfound wealth back. She's actually a really funny character and the story is super entertaining and even kind of heartwarming. So anyway, thanks for tuning in to learn more about Meltem, Nick, Bitcoin Layer 2s, and the Stacks Conference. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Don't forget, we are now on YouTube. Subscribe to the Unchained YouTube channel, today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.